Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. Delighted to say I'm here with Gillian Lavender. She is the co-founder of London and New York Meditation Centres. She's also the author of this book. Uh, oh, it's blurry out a bit there, but it's Why Meditate? Because it works. Gillian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. Now, just before we were coming on stream, um, we, you were talking about your background, right? And the, the fact that you've not come out of kind of yoga, as you said, woo-woo circles. You, <laughs> you had a, like a proper job. Yeah, I had a proper <laughs> for a job. While. Yeah, yes. which I think is interesting for like our audience. So maybe uh, before we're definitely going to dive into meditation, but like maybe give us a little bit of a sketch of, you know, how you came to meditation to begin with. Yeah, I think it's good because it gives you a sense then of actually some of the things that meditation can do for you. And, you know, I, I learned to meditate and I'm showing my age here, but, you know, over 25 years ago, I was living in Sydney at the time and I was working in a, a publishing, global publishing company and it was a startup and I was working crazy hours across different time zones. I was flying all the time. So I was always jet lagged because um, Sydney's a long way from everywhere. Um, and I would probably be the most, um, the least obvious candidate for meditation if you had seen me. Uh, and I had some preconceived ideas about meditation. You know, that was back in the day when we didn't have apps and we didn't have, you know, it was not mainstream in the way that it is now. It was kind of weird and a bit out there. And I certainly thought so, you know, I thought it was all going to be a bit brown rice and sandals for me, you know, but I found out about it through a friend, his father, who was somebody who'd been very successful in business and who I really respected. And he was an insomniac and had had difficulties all his life with sleeping and had tried so many different things and nothing had really stuck. And then he learned meditation and I was, I was a surprised because I didn't sort of think, oh, meditation in this guy quite, you know, um, I don't say conservative, but just, you know, average guy. And then, and then it was working and he was feeling better and he was sleeping because I knew what a big deal it had been for him. And, you know, we all know being tired is not fun. Not sleeping is a, a real issue in our life. It has a huge impact. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to check this out because I was tired. You know, I was actually getting to sleep and I was sort of thinking I was sleeping okay, but I would wake up in the morning and I'd be pushing that snooze button and I did not want to get out of bed. You know, I was even after what I thought was a good night's sleep, I wasn't feeling revitalized and ready to go. And I think, you know, all that jet lag in my system, working crazy hours, playing a little bit too hard, um, had something to do with that. So I went along to this talk and it was with great relief that I saw that my soon-to-be teacher looked normal. Um, there he was in a suit, other people in the room looked normal. Um, and there was a lot of science behind it. You know, this is not woo-woo, although this is ancient knowledge. It's over 5,000 years old. It's, you know, we know what happens to brain functioning. We can measure it on um, an EEG. We can see what happens to metabolic rate. It's very, very clear. So that was comforting for me. So on the back of that kind of endorsement and feeling okay about it, I thought, okay, I'm going to do it. So I started and I started noticing changes really quickly. I started waking up before my alarm clock and that had not been happening. I felt less anxious. I had been feeling pretty overwhelmed by everything that I had on my plate. 
And it wasn't like my life changed dramatically when I learned to meditate, but I, I definitely felt my response to the demands in my life shifted and I wasn't feeling like I was constantly on the back foot. I was able to deal with the jet lag in a very different way because when you're flying, you can meditate, just sit comfortably, close the eyes. So the jet lag just went away. That was a major breakthrough. Um, and I well, just that's, continued that's, doing that's, that's interesting. The jet lag went away like yeah. completely just from the meditation. Yeah, because jet lag is a function of you being in that tin can at 36,000 feet and putting your body through a lot. It's very tough on the system. And the reason we, we get to the other end and we feel foggy and we, you know, we're out of sync with the local time zone and all that body's fatigued. There's a lot mm. of demand on the body. So what we recommend is that you meditate many times throughout the flight. And what it does is it is an antidote to all of that. The, the fatigue just is, um, doesn't build up in the system. And so you arrive at your destination and you're in better shape and then you can get into the time zone more quickly. You can be there for your meeting or your holiday or whatever, and not feel the effect of it, the legacy effect of that fatigue for hours or days. So it has a really big impact on that. So I continued meditating. I, it was just something I did. Um, and because I could do it anywhere on a train or a plane, it was something I could fit into my kind of crazy schedule. Um, and then I moved to Paris. I was running a division there and then to London. That's how I ended up in London. And I was one, running one of three global divisions of this company. And then I decided I wanted a break and I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. And so like, you know, Kiwis, we get a backpack on and we go traveling for a while. And I met up with my teacher of meditation who'd moved back to the States. And he said, why don't you come and spend some time here in Flagstaff in Arizona? And I did. And I ended up being there for over a year. Wow. training to be a teacher of Vedic meditation. So having gone from running global publishing company to being a teacher, you know, people were like, what is going on here? Um, but for me, it was a kind of, you know, I had this knowledge and I knew it worked and I knew there were people who needed it. And I was able to present it in a way that wasn't brown rice and sandals. And yeah. um, that's what we need, you know? And so yeah, I've been teaching uh, in London uh, since 2000, well, 2003, I finished my training. Um, my partner, Michael, is also a teacher and we have London Meditation Center in New York. He's American. And so he's, before the pandemic, you know, we'd be in New York every four or five weeks um, teaching. There's a big demand there, but our base is in London. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah, that's quite a story. So um, well, the first thing I want to mention, and you talk about this in the book, is meditating on a plane. Now, what that was one of the misconceptions that this helped um, eliminate for me was that, like, because when I meditate, like, I have something of a practice. I like sit cross-legged, and I, you know, and I try and do it the kind of yogic way. Like, I am not an ex, you know, I've got no sort of background in training of it. It's just sort of what I've picked up through going to yoga classes or what I've yeah, read in yeah. books. Uh, I don't, I don't do the chanting. But I would still look pretty weird doing it on a plane. And, and that's, that's something you talk about, right? That you can, yeah. you can make it. Yeah, you uh, can do this anywhere simple. and you don't look weird, you know? Um, yeah. You know, so I was sitting on a train the other day and I had my bag on my lap. I'm just sitting in the chair with my eyes closed, meditating. 
Now, there was a guy across from me and he was also sitting there with his eyes closed. He was sort of, I mean, looking a bit dozy, maybe falling asleep. We look the same from the outside. However, something's very different is happening in my nervous system as a meditator because in that process of meditating, I am thinking silently a sound, which we call a mantra. And it's a sound that's very particular to my nervous system. So my job as a teacher is to allocate the correct sound to the individual. So I'm not chanting. I'm not speaking anything out loud. I'm not sitting in some weird pretzel position. I'm simply sitting there in the chair. Nobody would know anything different. However, what's happening is pretty phenomenal in terms of that sound is creating a process of de-excitation in the mind. It starts to self-refine. And so there I am sitting on the train. My body is resting up to about five times deeper than sleep last night. And yet you wouldn't know that from looking at me from the outside. Yeah. And, that, and I, I found that. And the second thing you mentioned there, I also found you know, an extraordinary you know, fact that I hadn't um, uh, encountered before that when we meditate, it's, we, we actually reduce our metabolic rate to lower than we would in sleep, right? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? You know, I think it's, it's such efficient rest, you know, and, and I, in the context of being a meditator, I then regard sleep as pretty mediocre rest in comparison to meditation. And, you know, I know when I went through, when my daughter was born and I was, you know, sleep was, you know, disturbed and I was missing out on a lot of sleep, I knew I could get in the chair, close my eyes and meditate, and I would recover and I would be able to, you know, deal with the day. So meditation doesn't replace sleep. Sleep is important. We need to get horizontal every 24 hours for blood pressure and hormone balance and all sorts of reasons. However, Many, many people come to me with issues around their sleep. And it's very interesting when you get tired and when you have that buildup and accumulation of stress in your system, the very thing you need is rest. And that is the thing that becomes increasingly more difficult and elusive because you are wound up. I've just mm. finished teaching a guy to meditate, very senior business person, and he has been dealing with this issue. He is so wired, tired, but wired, so much stress chemistry sloshing through his system that he cannot settle down. He can't even sit. He said, I can't even sit on the sofa and read a book. I can't focus because I'm so wired. And so then he sits down and he learns to meditate. And for 20 minutes, he sits there and is very relaxed and doesn't move. And that is a breakthrough in itself. So yeah, this, this rest is the key. And we, you know, as we were talking about earlier, you know, it's very costly to be tired. Nobody makes yeah. the best decisions. Nobody is the most creative. Nobody is the most um, rigorous in their thinking. And nobody is the nicest when they're tired. So, yeah, yeah it's really important. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I, it came to me the other, so the other day I was having a conversation with the guy who's actually my, my personal trainer and he was saying, oh, and I was talking, saying I was going to have you on the show. And I said, you know, talking about the meditation. He said, oh, well, I get, I get out in my hot tub, you know, sometimes in the morning before the kids can sleep and I'll just sort of sit in the, the hot tub and relax. So he's like, so I guess I'm kind of doing meditation. And I'm like, ah, I doubt it because, you know, what I've just read in this book suggests to me that what you're not doing is getting into a state which gets you into that 
deeper than sleep rest. So you might be relaxing and it might be good for you in other ways, but what you're not doing is the same as meditation. Yeah. People say that about running, right? Well, I go out and run and, you know, I get to clear my mind a bit and, but you're you're making a very strong point here that, that those forms of relaxation are just not the same. Yes, exactly. I mean, I hear it all the time and it's why I included it in the book, you know, running is my meditation or I was talking to a woman the other day. She said, oh, you know, cooking, cooking's my thing. You know, that's my time when I zone out and I can, I'm like, fine, lovely. However, that's not meditation. What is meditation? You know, if someone goes for a run and they feel like, yeah, I'm not thinking about the emails and I'm not thinking about the bills and I'm, I'm just zoned out. My mind is stopped. Well, yeah, because you're in a moment of fight flight. Your body is, is prepped for the excitation. You're in excitation mode. Meditation is very different. Meditation is about de-excitation. It's about settling down the mind and moving away from thinking, moving away from activity and getting to that least excited state of consciousness. And so that is a very different psychophysiological signature than if you're running down the street where your heart rate's up and your metabolic rate's up and your cortisol levels are up and all those things. And sitting in the hot tub, yeah, you know, bit of a contrast from racing around, but it's not giving you the depth. It's not allowing you to, what we would say in meditation jargon, transcend or step beyond thinking and this is the role of the mantra, it's a little vehicle. It allows the mind to settle down. It becomes increasingly charming and the mind just follows it and it gets fainter and fainter and fainter and then it disappears. Mind falls mute. It falls quiet for a moment. And then the body starts to release stress and the mind gets pulled up and then we come back to the mantra. And that whole process is happening automatically. I don't need to do anything. It's easy peasy. And it's not that I'm sitting there focusing, trying to not think. You know, the moment I say to you, don't think, you know, focus on the candle flame. You're like, oh, God, you know, now I'm thinking about the email. Shoot, I didn't turn that thing off. Oh, wait, 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 no, back to the candle flame. And you've got this battle going on, you know. It's just like a, it's a fight because that's not how the mind works. Your mind wants something charming. So someone starts playing your favorite song in the other room. It's like, oh, that's nice. Boom, mind goes there. Well, the interesting thing about the mantra is as it becomes more refined, it becomes increasingly delicious for the mind and the mind goes there automatically. So there's no trying, there's no concentrating, there's no focusing. So I would say to the guy in the hot tub, yeah, lovely experience, but it's, it's a fraction of what you're going to experience when you're meditating. Yeah. And now meditating in a hot tub. <laughs> That's the next level. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I wouldn't recommend doing what I teach in a hot tub. You might really go under. <laughs> right. You might never come out. <laughs> the longest uh, hot tub you've ever had. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, the, well, the other thing that I enjoyed in the book as well, where you make this distinction, like these three types of meditation, and you've kind of hinted at them there but I wonder if you could spell that out because I, I maybe like me you've had lots of people listening may have had sort of try and failed attempts at meditation uh, and it may be for one of the reasons you know associated with these different types so I wonder if you could yeah yeah, yeah. it's so oh, wow. interesting you know I've been teaching for a while now gosh quite a while 
And when I used to, I do these introductory talks and I'd say to people, okay, who's tried meditation? You know, maybe like one or two hands in a room of 30 would go up and that would be sort of fringe, you know. (laughs) And now if I say, okay, who's tried meditation? It's like, you know, nine out of 10 hands go up. And then I say, okay, so who is meditating every day? And then all the hands go down and maybe like one or two kind of pop up, you know. And so then you dive a little bit deeper into this and you say, well, what have you been doing? Well, I've done the app or I was guided through something at the end of yoga. And that was quite nice, although I think I fell asleep. But, you know, it was nice. And, you know, so people have been doing a lot of stuff. Mindfulness is much more in the mainstream than what it was. And so a lot of people have tried something. My point is there are a lot of different approaches to this. The first is what I call concentration or focused attention. I am going to concentrate on the candle flame or I'm focusing on my breathing to the exclusion of everything else, just that. And if I do that, that will be the focal point that will allow my mind to drop all the other thoughts about the laundry and the email and all the bills and all that and just go to the candle flame. And from that place, I will find peace really hard for those reasons I was saying earlier, because your mind isn't going to work like that. It's not, you know, we talk about the monkey mind. I hear about it all the time. The monkey mind, you know, monkey mind, you've got to control it. You've got to force it. Well, actually, if anyone, you know, wants to catch a monkey, they will know that that ain't the way to catch a monkey. Put a few bananas down there, give it something that it wants, and the monkey goes there. And the mind is the same. The mind, give the mind what it wants. Give it something charming. So you've got the concentration approach. Then you've got the open monitoring awareness approach. This is the second category, often known as mindfulness. I am putting my attention as I do the dishes. I'm very present. I can feel the water on my hands. My feet are planted firmly on the floor. Oh, shoot. There's that. I forgot to do that thing, but no, no, back here. I'm noticing the thoughts. I'm just sort of monitoring that. It's okay, but come back here. There's an, there's effort to hold the present moment. This is what mindfulness means to be mindful, to be present. However, that process, those techniques, or I'm being guided through, you know, some pink loveliness is coming through my toes and now it's coming up my knees and someone's guiding me through some process. This is what a lot of the apps are attempting to do. It's a start. It's a start. Is it going to allow you to step beyond thought and experience the baseline of your consciousness? Unlikely. Unlikely. There's still some effort. There's still some thinking. Then there's a third category, which is what I teach. Uh, Vedic meditation falls in this category. We call it the automatic self-transcending techniques. This is when you are able to transcend, that means step beyond activity and step beyond thinking to arrive at a state of being because we're human beings. We're not human thinkings. Mm -hmm. So that is a process that is ridiculously easy when we know how. That's the role of the mantra. It's the vehicle that allows the mind to get softer and softer and fainter and fainter and then arrive at that baseline of consciousness which is a very interesting state because when we look at 
what happens to the meditator in that state, they're not asleep. I'm not sitting there on the train kind of conked out. Actually, I'm highly, highly alert in terms of my brain functioning. And when we look at the EEG, we'll see that the brain signature for somebody practicing this technique is high degree of coherence in the left and the front hemisphere of the brain and a lot of engagement in the prefrontal cortex. This is very, very important because this is the higher human functioning center. This is your executive processing center, the CEO of the brain, they call it. Very, very engaged in this style of meditation. But the point I want to make is that that process of reaching that deep, deep baseline state is effortless when you have that vehicle. And it is many, many times deeper and more profound. And so the benefits are going to be more impactful. So people are coming to me all the time these days, having tried predominantly apps at the moment, which are kind of going through a bit of a product life cycle, easy to start, very low entry point, easy adoption, but people don't stick with them because actually it involves a bit of effort. They say, well, I don't notice such a difference. And it feels like a bit of a, it's like another chore. It's another thing on my list that I've got to do. And I don't find it that enjoyable, that easy. And then they come along and they sit in the chair and I give them a mantra and boom, the whole thing happens automatically. And it happens in a way that is so profound that they A, enjoy it and they notice changes. And nobody is going to sit around with their eyes closed every day. If A, it doesn't feel good when they do it and afterwards, and if it doesn't work, it's got to be practical. So, you know, yes, there are different ways. And it's like, you know, I I don't want to poo-poo anything, you know, everybody's on this path and at their own pace and we're all doing our thing. Anytime somebody sits down and closes their eyes and has a little bit of quiet and tunes into what's going on in their body, I would say that is a a major step forward. Um, So these are all sort of stepping stones along the way, um, like rungs on the ladder. And, you know, what I want is to be self-sufficient in my practice. I don't want to be relying on an internet connection or a piece of technology. You know, I had one of my clients, he'd been doing the, the app thing to try to get to sleep. He said, look, I know about sleep hygiene. I don't want to have technology in my bedroom. I don't want to have to be relying on a phone to get to sleep. The very thing I want to get away from is my phone. And yet there I am having to make sure that I've got that and I'm plugged in and I've got my AirPods and, you know, I don't want that. You know, what I want is to have a self-sufficient, natural practice that works. And this is time-tested and the science is, is there. It's really very clear. Yeah. And just as you describe it, that getting to that baseline of consciousness and, you know, beyond the mind, you know, contrast that. I mean, I've never had experience anything like that running, right? So when, yeah. it, when described in those terms, it sort of seems ludicrous that you could reach that or even doing the dishes, right? I mean, yeah. maybe there's yeah. some level of mastery that's possible, but like in normal, in most people's lives, that's just not going to be achievable, right? In, in, uh, you know, in, in our no. day-to-day activity. No, um, we, and we just need to learn a simple technique. You know, we learn a lot of things. We learn, mothers teach their children how to fall asleep. We learn how to ride a bike. We learn how to 
to read, we learn. These are just it's, it's knowledge, you know. And when you have knowledge of how to settle down the mind and the body and give it a balance to all of this thinking and doing, thinking and doing is fine. And yet, what's the baseline? What's the what's the funding mechanism? What's the where are all those thoughts coming from? Well, they're coming from consciousness. You know, somebody over there, dead body. No, no action, no thoughts, because there's no consciousness present. Consciousness is a quantity. I want more of it. I don't want to be semi-conscious. I don't want to be sleepy conscious. And so I want to be fully conscious. And so this is the key to us experiencing life in a, in a fuller way and you know, maximizing our potential. And if we have a lot of tiredness and a lot of stress in our system, we are undermining our ability to do that. So we've got to get that stuff out. <laughs> and that's where meditation is, you know, so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, and the, the other thing that, so I've made a change since reading your book is that, because um, I, tr- I do try and meditate like twice a day, 20 minutes. And, and that's fantastic. For the, for the last, like, and I've really, it's, it just seems to be some synchronicity, right? That literally in the last couple of weeks leading up to getting your email and reading this book, I'd been really getting back into meditation. And, but one of the things that shifted for me when I read this book was this, you know, this idea that you get to a deeper level of rest and sleep. Now, I've got two four-year-old boys and my sleep can get a bit mixed up. And I always used to, uh, always used to put sleep first, prioritize sleep. Uh, and so if it was getting late and it was like, oh, okay, I'm just going to skip the meditation and, um, you know, I'll go, I'll go to sleep instead. But I, I've changed that now. And now I always prioritize meditation. Uh, even if it means I'm not going to get like my eight hours and maybe I'm only going to get six and a half or seven hours because I'm choosing to meditate. Mm. Uh, and it's made a big difference, actually. It's, it's really made That's a difference. Right. Like, you know, um, the, the, the sleep I do get is better. And the other thing, which you mentioned from one of your students, I think your testimonials in the book, she mentioned that initially her, she actually ended up sleeping longer and found it harder to get up. And I'm in that state. And I think it's because I've just come, you know, these boys have come out of like, I've, I've had a, three years or three or four years basically of disrupted sleep. And so now I'm feeling, I'm sleeping in like more often since I've started yeah. the meditation. And I think that's just because I'm in a bit of a catch up mode. Um, yeah. yeah. As a result Your body is, you know, body has a perfect accounting system when it comes to missing out on sleep. And so, you know, yes, it's going to give you, there's going to be two things, a bit of spillover of fatigue <clears throat> coming out as a result of doing the meditation. But also, you know, the body is crying out for more horizontal time. It's cry- it wants to kind of catch up. Over time, what I see in meditators, and this is certainly my own experience, is that we actually need less sleep over time. Yeah. But we all come to meditation with a bit of a stockpile of tiredness and missed nights of sleep and, and some stress and, you know, tension. So there's the clearing out that needs to happen. But the, the medium to long term is, yeah, we, we become less needy of lying around with our eyes closed, you know, conked <laughs> out. Actually, we can be up. And one of my students, you know, she was struggling with her energy levels and pretty quickly she found herself sleeping an hour and a half less. That's, that's amazing. You know, she said, I have more energy. I'm up. I'm exercising. I wasn't doing that before. I'm, she's, you know, a whole lot of things started happening. She had time for that because that's another thing that I hear all, you know, 
again and again, oh, I don't have time to meditate. You know, I was just talking about this with someone on the weekend. I, I don't have time for that. And that was certainly I, I, my... I'll get into that when I retire. I've had that a few times. Like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, then I'll settle down. Then I'll be able to do it. Yeah. yeah. Well, the whole when I retire thing is, you know, um, there's a lot to that. But yeah, I don't have time, you know. And I, I admit, hand on heart, I, when I first went along to that talk and they said, oh, it's going to be 20 minutes twice a day, I went into a mild state of panic. I was like, oh, God, where's that going to come from? Because I was always chasing time. I never felt like I had enough time. And then I learned to meditate and I felt clearer and I was more grounded and I was calmer. And I was getting through my to-do list in a very different way. I was more focused. I actually let go of some things that shouldn't be on my list. They should be on that person's list. And I had more time. You know, it was really interesting. And my students say this all the time. And as one of my students, I think I wrote about it in the book. She said, I don't have time not to meditate. You know, I absolutely need this because I'm going to be higher functioning human being when I take the time. So the, the investment the, of the time, the return, the ROI on that investment is profound. Yes. And I think, I mean, I think what's interesting, going back to your story, you're running a division of a, of a global publishing company. And, you know, there'll be tons of people who are in like similar level of busyness, right, in their jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially, it seems like even worse with this like Zoom culture, right? Like you, it, <laughs> you don't yeah. have those moments between meetings where you could kind of just let the, the the, the nervous system, you know, recalibrate a bit, right? You're just bang, 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 zoom, zoom, zoom. And, yeah. uh, and, but you're in that position and it, that seems to be like a pivotal moment. And you're, you chose to like, okay, I'm going to give this a go. I'm going to, I'm just going to make that time and trust, right. That it's going to work out. Is, is it something yeah. like that? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, maybe things had got to a point, a sort of a bad, I call it the bad enough saturation point. You know, I'd sort of was walking right up to that line. I wasn't fully burning out, but I could see the writing on the wall. You know, I could see that my life had sort of unsustainability written all over it. And I was getting little signals, you know, about that um, energy levels, just feeling off, you know, certain health issues that were starting to kind of just, you know, little signals. And I think everybody, you know, comes to meditation at the right time. And sometimes it is a case of things have got so bad. But sometimes it's not, it's not full on crisis. It's just that one can feel something's off, you know, something isn't where I want it to be. And, you know, it's interesting. Meditation doesn't require you to do anything different in your life except sit in the chair and close the eyes and do this thing in a really easy way in all sorts of different places twice a day. You don't have to stop drinking coffee. You don't have to, you know, start getting the Nutribullet out and juicing the kale and, you know, all that. There's none of that. There's no believing in anything. There's no, it's just simple mechanical technique, really. Um, that was very appealing for me. I just could get on with it. It didn't, I didn't have to go and be in some big groupy thing. And, you know, I could just do it where and when I, I was able to. Um, and I think it was just that inner voice that was saying to me, you know what, something isn't right. Something's off. We need to just, and I was able to kind of catch that. And Yeah, but a lot of people will have that and ignore it, right? They won't yeah. honor it. 
So it I like think that's an interesting thing that I'm seeing, and I, I don't know if you're noticing this in your work, that through the pandemic, and I talked about this the other day, I gave a talk at, at the How To Academy, and I was saying, you know, what I am seeing is that people are, you know, there's been so much busyness. There's been so much. We've been moving around. We've been traveling. We've been racing around. We never switch off. Go, go, go. And consuming a lot, consuming our way to happiness, supposedly. And then the pandemic comes along and it's like, oh, okay, you know, time out, everyone. Just you have to slow down and we have to um, not move around at the same pace in the same way that we were. And I think when you peel away the distractions of all of that overdoing and over moving and over consuming, actually it allows for a little bit more inward orientation in terms of, well, what are the things that are working in my life and what are the things that maybe need to shift? And so many people are coming to me on the back of that saying, actually, I'm really in a position now where I don't want to continue to ignore that which has actually been there for a while but I can actually tune into it in a way that perhaps I was just sort of covering up with all of that overactivity in the past. Um, so there's one positive out of, out of this. But I think, yes, there's, you know, if you think about all the great decisions that you make in your life, they're not coming through internet, intellectual gymnastics and analysis and here's my pros and here's my cons and, you know, there's a feeling, there's a feeling, a fine yeah. level of feeling. There's a gut feel, there's an intuition. Uh, go that way, sign that contract, kiss that person, you know, eat that, whatever it is, you know, it's a feeling. And every time we f- are able to follow that gut feel, yeah, good things happen. So can you, can you detect that? Are you able to tune into that? Well, for most people, if they are so wound up and tense and and there's a lot of stress and fatigue that becomes increasingly difficult and then we do have to be sort of analyzing and and we second guess ourselves and we lose our confidence and what i'm hearing from people is because they are expected to be constantly switched on and they maybe are not getting the downtime of a commute and all of that there's there's even less of that opportunity yeah, I had I had someone lamenting that specifically, lamenting lose loss of the commute because that was what he described as his protected time. That was like his yeah. half an hour a day where he could read a book. So I think I think it's interesting. I think you're right on on some for some people they're getting more space and time, and their life has settled, and actually they they've got the space to to hear mm-hmm. their intuition a little more. And then there are others for whom I think it's actually got worse, and they're just Absolutely. chained to their desk and their screen. And, uh, you know, it's, it's become less healthy. So I, I think that's Absolutely. I think it's, um, and for both reasons, you know, we've got to find the tools and the techniques that are, that we can carve out that time. And, you know, time is your most precious resource. You have 20 minutes, you don't get it back. It's gone. So yeah. what are we doing with our time? You know, what, how, and, and so often, 20 minutes can go, you know, that's a bit of faffing around on Instagram, a bit of (laughs) emails and boom, gone, gone, you know? So yeah, you know, what are, what are we doing with it? Um, precious days and nights are passing. Yeah. And I found that that's one of the, been the effects of when, you know, this last month or so of getting back into meditation, 
seriously has been just noticing time, you know, I'll be like, oh, shit, man, I've been staring at my phone for like 13 minutes. Like, oh, come on, put the phone down. Right. Yeah. Like that, just being more present and aware to like how I'm spending my time. And I, th- be, be, yeah, because I'm just more present to life. So that I think that's one of the ways you get more time back is because you then, the time you're not meditating, you're much more present to what it is you're actually doing. Absolutely. You know, you're not sort of, that's where it all comes back to consciousness, consciousness or awareness. I use those words interchangeably. And that's my point. You know, if I'm, if my consciousness is dull from fatigue or it is um, churned up and obstructed because of stress, then I can't be present. Now, mindfulness is good. I see mindfulness as an outcome of that settled, coherent state of being. And so, yeah, then I can really be putting my attention on what it is that's important and tune into the present moment because the present moment is the future in the making. If I'm not tuned into what's going on now, then, you know, then I'm the future's coming at me, but I'm not actually tuned to what's going on. So I think for many people, they, when they are in that state of overload and overwhelm and stress and constantly going and tired, either their consciousness is pulled into the past. It's like, oh God, why did I do that? Or why didn't I do that? And we kind of beat ourselves up and there's the, the rehashing of the, what's gone. Or more commonly, there's the speculating about what may or may not happen in the future. Now, both of those things are stretching consciousness away from the present moment. There's something going on right now. There's a four-year-old that wants to show you something really beautiful that they picked up from the, on the footpath. But no, I'm not there because I'm worrying about something in the imaginary future or I'm going over old ground. And we miss the present moment. And so, yeah. yeah, to be present, it is the number one thing, actually. And as you say, then you make a better call about what it is that you're doing in that moment. Yeah, and I found, it's interesting, I read a book, uh, it's, in fact, it's on my bush, bookshelf, I can see it right now, called, you know, The One Thing. And this whole philosophy was around you, like, you just have basically one thing on your to-do list that you you know, you make your priority for the day and you, you know, you build your life by just doing one really important thing every day. And it's a great philosophy. And I tried it. And it was just, I just couldn't, I couldn't make it stick in my life. And I think it, and, and now actually since meditating, for the, for, I can now see that happening just more naturally now. I, yeah. I just asked myself the question, okay, like what, what's the one thing I'm going to focus on today? I guess yeah. because I had that practice in the meditation of, of, of being more focused and present to like, like, yeah, not having all that distraction around. Yeah. So what I'm putting my attention on is actually getting my full attention. You know, it's mm. not it's not pulled away from the present. So yeah, I think what I would say is that as consciousness expands, one of the hallmarks of that is that you can actually hold more in your awareness at any one time. You know, that I want to be able to have that wide angle lens. I want to be able to see the full picture of what's going on. What happens is that when we get stressed and when we get tired, everything gets very skinny. Everything gets narrowed down. Oh, you know, because in a moment of fight flight, when you're, you know, the body thinks that there's a saber-toothed cat there, 
I can't deal with the little birdies. Just uh, the saber-toothed cat, everything gets really narrow. I would say, okay, we want, we want that lens to be much wider because when I can see more, I can see, oh, well, that's happening because that thing is knocking that and that's going to happen there. And I can connect the dots because I've got access to a much bigger picture. I can still drill down and focus on that thing because that's really relevant right now, but not the expense of the big picture, not at the expense of context. We want both. Yeah. Yeah. I hadn't considered that, right? That, yeah, that's not something I've been present to, but that's maybe that'll come or maybe I'm just not present to it right now. But that idea of expanded awareness, yeah. Well, it's happening probably more than you, and it will expand as you continue with your meditation practice. Yes, there's that clarity about this thing but actually not at the expense of that thing that's going on over there because I might need to change in a pretty short yeah. amount of time. And that's now the most important thing. And I have the flexibility and I have the awareness, as you say, to be able to actually see what's right. And that's changing all the time. Right. And this is fascinating because this now draws me to a, to a link. To, we talked on the show that one of the themes has been com- this idea of complexity theory and complexity science and comp- but one of the things we talk about in the, in the sort of complexity world is this ability to sense into adjacent possibilities or adjacent potentials. Like, yes, you, you may be focused on this thing right now, but in order to be effective in complexity in our complex lives, we, we want to be always aware of, ah, actually, what's this adjacent possible? What's this thing right here just to the side of me that, that actually yeah. might be the thing to do, right? And, yeah. and keeping some looseness in where to put our attention. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and the... The opposition to that capacity is rigidity. If I'm rigid, if I'm limited, then I don't have the flex to be able to move beyond here. When I have that expansive awareness, it may still be that this is the thing that's primary. However, not at the expense of me being able to see that something is shifting over here or that something is now moving into primary position and I can let go of that because this is emergent, this is coming, and now this is the new present. In order for that to happen, we don't want to constantly be going around in life on the back foot feeling surprised. I would say if you are constantly living in a state of surprise, then you ain't paying attention. You don't have the awareness that something like hitting you, oh, right now, this is the thing. Well, actually, I want to catch that earlier rather than later. I want to get that whisper of that new emergent influence or dominant, soon-to-be dominant thing. What do I need? I need the wide-angle lens. I need that full, chunky consciousness to be able to do that. And to be able, and this is another hallmark of expanded awareness, to be able to see cause and effect and connect the dots. So as you say, yeah, we live in a stunningly beautiful, complex world. Do you have the state of consciousness that can hold it and contain it and see it and deal with it and respond to it? And that is where these technologies of meditation are so fundamental in our capacity to be able to engage in that way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 yeah, I really see it. 
Um, and I, the example that comes to mind as you're speaking is, is with my son. Like I, it, one of the things you talk about, you, you lash out. That's why you, you sort of, you, 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 you carbs out. And I'm seeing some of that, but I did lash out, you know, one of my sons the other day. And, um, I was like, I wanted to get him into the bedroom and it was like, he wouldn't go to sleep. And, you know, I was just like, Arthur, you know, just get in your bedroom. Right. And, and, and I think that's an example of just being really narrow, right? I'm so focused on like, you move into your, right? <laughs> Instead of like, whoa, like all the way out. Okay, like, yes, <laughs> Richard like wants to get the kid in the bedroom, but Arthur wants to be somewhere else. Like, <laughs> it's not critical that he gets into the bedroom in the next like eight seconds, right? You know? Yeah. And yeah. I could like immediately see now that right there, you know, my consciousness was so narrow and like overly focused on this one task. Yeah. And that caused me to lash out at him rather than like yeah, yeah. and so we picture. lock in and we lock in and we're focused oh we're focused yeah oh, it's definitely focused <laughs> but you know pretty limited in terms of the yeah. bandwidth and it doesn't take into account that actually arthur's got something else going on mm. and he's not quite there yet and we need to shift a few things around and get circumstances in place so that we can meet that goal. It may be the goal that may be, you know, desirable one. But when we lock in and we get rigid, and I talk about this a lot in the book, you know, what is the key? And particularly for this young generation, what do we want? We want them to be adaptable because there is only one constant and that is change. Things are changing and they're not the pace of change is not slowing down, you know. Oh, it's, it's getting, it's, I just had a guest on the podcast. It's, it's feeding it's up. It's accelerating. So what is that asking of us as human beings? It's asking the opposite of rigidity and locking in. It's asking for big consciousness. It's asking for adaptability. Every time, you know, a child comes and they're, you know, we want that child in bed, but the demand is there. I have a four-year-old who doesn't want to go to bed right now. That's a demand. That is a change in expectation. That is asking me to adapt. So do you have the, the abundance of adaptation capacity? I call this adaptation energy. It's like a bank balance. You know, do you have lots of zeros on, the, on your bank balance of adaptability? Because here's new information. Arthur doesn't want to go to bed, right? That's the demand. Change in expectation, Richard. Okay, so what is it? I need to adapt. And for when your adaptation energy bank balance is, is in the black, okay, sure, I've got something to draw down upon. I can adapt. I can fl- be flexible. I can respond here, shift around a little bit, change gears. But when our adaptation bank balance is in the red and we're overdrawn, four-year-old who's not doing what I want them to do, that's a demand that I cannot meet in a way that is helpful and appropriate. And so what happens? I maladapt to the demand. And maladaptation to a demand equals stress. Very simple equation. So I get stressed. I get worked up. Heart rate is up. Blood pressure is raised. I'm yelling. Arthur's in a tiz. And what do we got? I'm just using this as an example. Yeah, no, it's, it's just it, so accurate as if you were there. It could be train coming late. It could be a customer who decides that they don't want to work with you anymore. It could be somebody that doesn't want to cuddle with you anymore. It, whatever it is, you know, demands. This is what we face. And so 
meditation is like bumping up your bank balance of adaptation energy every time you sit down in the chair and close the eyes. More adaptability, more capacity to see, and therefore change is something that we're able to embrace on the front foot enthusiastically rather than, oh my God, you know, it's too much or I'm a victim, poor me, or it's coming at me and I'm kind of caught off balance and I'm surprised because I didn't see it coming. And then change becomes very frightening. And we live in a world which is saturated with this fear. You know, everyone wants to kind of get back into 1950s, you know. No, ain't happening. You know, change is fast. So are you able to adapt? It's absolutely key. Yeah. Yeah, and and it, the 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 thought that emerges now for me now, of course, this makes complete sense. And you know, my situation with Arthur, and I'm just noticing. I'm doing. I give that as an example. It's almost beca- it's become much rare, but it's become much more rare. Uh, but the other thing that comes to mind is that in businesses, right, the same thing we can talk about. Like I find a lot when I'm coaching teams. Like one of the important things to consider if you want to be more adaptive as a team is to take you know, regular moments to stop right to stop and reflect as a team you know, yeah. on how you're being yeah and it's one of the hardest things for teams to adopt it's for all the same reasons that we find it hard as individuals to adopt meditation oh yeah but, I, but we haven't got the time you know we just don't have the time and it's the what is the easiest meeting to cancel right oh you know forget the you know retrospective or the reflection you know we're, we're busy something's important to come in um but i think again it's like often with teams they don't do it deep deeply enough and often enough initially to start to see the benefits uh as you say to bring their adaptation you know balance into the black yeah you know such that they can then reap reap the benefits of working in that way yeah well there's too much firefighting and the, mm. there's firefighting because they didn't see it coming or because they made a crappy decision or because it was highly reactive it kind of feeds into itself but i think you're absolutely right you know you think about everything that you do in your life when you are rested and you are paying attention, everything that comes from that state, yeah, it's going to be more successful. When you're reactive and you're, you know, out of balance and you're feeling time poor and you're feeling pressurized, well, everything that comes from that is going to be less effective. That simple relationship to, you know, everything in life is a balance between rest and activity, rest and activity. Now, a team is a being, it has a personality. Like any relationship, two people come, there's a, there's a, there's a relationship. It's like a third entity. So for a team, there is an entity which is the culmination of all of those individuals. And that entity needs rest in order to be fully active. And I would position it to people, what is it that you're putting in? What are you nourishing this entity, this team? What is it getting? Is it being nourished with a bit of downtime and a bit of pausing and a bit of grounding? Or is it just like a machine that's kind of going for a hundred years and never stopping? Because we know where that will end. So, We need to think about, because life is about collaboration, you know, the work that you're doing with teams is so important because this is the great skill 
because everything that gets produced has the capacity to be greater than the sum of those parts. That's the whole idea about community and collaboration and working together. We just need to recognize that that in itself is a being, it's an entity, and it will reflect back what we are feeding it. And if it is starved of attention and starved of nourishment, i.e. some downtime, then let's not be surprised about the lack of effectiveness of what gets what is produced from that entity. Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a great way. Of, I've never sort of conceived a TV that in those terms as a you know as an entity in itself that needs nourishment. That's a great way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but also the other thought that comes to me is that what I find as well with teams, in order to for them to sort of honour those more reflective practices, is you almost need a critical mass of of people in the team and especially the leaders of the team that have found value for this type of work in an in themselves as individuals before they're going to lead others into a collective version of that. Um, And uh, I think that's why this conversation is so important, right? That as individuals, we have to make the first step uh, before we can start to, you know, spread uh, different ways of being to other others. Well, I think, you know, it's a very interesting word, responsibility, you know, responsibility is the ability to respond. So if somebody is in a position of responsibility, a so-called leader, Mm -hmm. they have the ability, they have the mandate through that position, through that, that title, whatever it is, they have the ability to respond in a certain way. What we are witnessing in our world today is a bit of a desert in terms of this kind of leadership where we are able to really take that responsibility where we have the ability to respond in a way which is going to be good for more people rather than less. Yeah. And leaders in organizations that have this ability to truly respond, they take that responsibility and they actually have it. Have a have a huge um, potential to impact because they have the mandate to start to introduce the space, even for these conversations to happen. For the kind of work that you're doing to be brought into an organisation, that is a more enlightened, more evolved um, leader. Now it's going to happen both ways. What we know is that change ultimately doesn't happen top down. You get a new president, you get a new prime minister, you get a new CEO. Some some impact. However, ultimately, it's the few who lead the many. It's change is going to be bottom up because the leaders that we have are a reflection of the of the society that we have. So. How do we change things? Ultimately, in the work I do, it's going to be more people being more awake that is going to lift this up because, you know, if you want a forest full of green trees, you know, you want a green forest, you need green trees. If you've got a whole lot of burnt, you know, stressed brown trees, you ain't got the green forest. So, you know, we need to, at an individual level, we need to shift the consciousness and that will then 
drive the kinds of leaders that we get. And I think this, for those leaders that are having these kinds of conversations and they're having these thoughts, they really are stepping into that responsibility because they have a certain ability just by the position. And there's a real opportunity there to take this because the need of the time is there and there is a growing receptivity as I'm sure you're seeing to this kind of work. I see it in the work that I'm doing. When I first started teaching and I would go into organizations and talk about stress, just talking about stress was like pushing on a closed door. Uh, right. You know, forget yeah. about mental well-being and mental health and all that. That's changing. But it was, you know, really was not, there was not an openness. Now it's different. Now it's changing. It's still not the majority by any stretch, but it's taking those, those that are more open and, and are stepping into those leadership roles with a bit more enlightenment, a bit more openness that is really going to shift things. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And you're, you're, you're right that it's changing. But as you say, it's almost like we're in the, the, it's, it's the early, it's like what, it, it seems to me like now that a lot of it is sort of lipstick, right? It's like, you know, we know you're all stressed. We know you're all maxed out. <laughs> But here's a mindfulness app or here's some like free yoga classes. It's like you're trying to sort of, it's, it's, it feels a bit like sellotape, right? It's not like we've got these, you know, these yeah. deep commitments by senior leaders to a yeah. different way of being for themselves as individuals as the starting place for a transformation of the culture of the organizations they lead. Like that is happening, but in a tiny, to a tiny degree, it seems like. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a function of where those leaders are at and their capacity to actually recognize and do something about the more fundamental issues. Because, mm. yes, you can, you can put Band-Aids on things, but there's that getting to the root cause of what's going on. You know, just take our society, highly medicated society, highly medicated Western world. What is that doing? You know, putting the lid on, and it's, there are times when medication is incredibly relevant and important and life-saving, of course. However, for our default position to be to only work at the level of the surface and not address the root cause of what's creating that disturbance in the psychophysiology, well, then it's continually just papering over at a very limited level. And yeah, but- in organizations, as you say, you know, there is a well, we can tick that box. Yeah, we put in a bit of a, you know, we've got a little meditation room or quiet room or we've done a little bit of mindfulness. We've got everybody signed up to an app. And yet, yes, I'd still like you to be on that call at 8 p.m., please. And, uh, you know, we push and we push. And and so, yeah, are we getting to the fundamentals? And I think on balance, there's a lot, lot of work to be done. Yeah. But when you experience the difference, like I, I mentioned before we came on the show, that it's one of the episodes is uh, my friend Shashin, and he runs his company where he meditates like at least 20 minutes, if not more, uh, you know, twice a day. Uh, he's totally committed to the sort of spiritual path and his meditation practice. Yeah. And he, his company, like I said, like I think it's every hour there's a chime and pe- this chime wow. indicates to people you've got the opportunity now if you'd like to sort of stop and meditate. And just for like a minute or two, but the, the, the difference is absolutely extraordinary when you walk into his office. It's like walking into like a temple. It's so calm. 
Yeah, it really is. And, you know, without doing anything out without me having this is at a time when I wasn't really meditating. I felt like I'd had some kind of calming experience just by being in the presence of all these meditators who happen to be data scientists. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I totally I think it's just, you know, it's phenomenal that that sort of environment is being created for people because, you know, we radiate what it is that we are. You know, we all know what it's like going into a boardroom and perhaps there's a lot of anger and tension and, you know, it's palpable. You can feel it. You know, we radiate out into our homes and into our workplaces and into our schools. It's a, it's a coming together of everything that those individuals bring to it. So if we have, you know, aggressive, tense, stressed, you know, uh, individuals, let's not be surprised by the environment that is created. So in this example that you're giving, well, there's awareness and people are actually feeling some balance and some calm and they're not, you know, off the charts in terms of stress levels, then it's palpable. You will feel it because it's consciousness. That's what you're radiating out into your environment. And I think that is, you know, that's a really amazing example of just how detectable that is uh, and how powerful that is. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you, I mean, even with you, like when you first came on the Zoom call, just the background of the whole presentation, I was immediately felt at some level like slightly calmer. Just, and yet, yeah, it's, yeah, there is something, isn't there? And, you know, I guess there's science around that, right? Like what's happening, uh, you know, I, I, I suppose it's, you know, is it the electrical field or the magnetic, you know, that we create? Yeah, I'm sure that if people, you know, maybe yeah, people have well, studied. We know, we know this from quantum field theory. We know that the baseline at the quantum level, everything is energy. So energy is everything. All this stuff that we think of, you know, those flowers, my hand, everything at the quantum level is a fluctuation out of that unified field. It's a wave function and it's happening 10 billion times a second. It's, and we perceive it as stuff, but we don't live in a particular universe. We live in a universe which is energy, including us at its baseline. So when you have in that field of consciousness, that field of energy, and you drop it, it's like, let's say somebody took a, a, a big blanket and pulled it really tight at each corner, and you drop in a bowling ball in the middle. What it does is it it stretches the canvas and then another one and another one. Because people say to me, oh, you know, when we meditate together, I feel that kind of pulling effect. Well, there's the coherence creation, all of those balls on that field of that canvas of consciousness, it has an effect. So absolutely, when we understand how the universe works, we're not separate. (laughs) We're not and isolated, it's all connected. And that is not woo-woo, that is science. And mm. so when you add that coherence in, it spreads, it spreads. And it, we radiate that out to our children and to our partners and to our co-workers and every, the guy that sells us the newspaper everywhere. So what are we witnessing in the world? We're witnessing a radiation of the opposite, a lot of tension, a lot of stress. So you walk down the street and everybody is a bit hot and the horns are honking and everybody's got a bit of road rage and everything's heating up. 
because we're, you know, we're in an age where everything's a bit hot, a bit angry. The planet is hot. Everything is heating up. And so are people's tempers and so are their, their blood pressure and so is their nervous system. This is, we need to cool things down. We need to have technologies yeah. that turn the volume down. We need to be able to de-excite. We need to able to meditate and do the opposite as a counterbalance to all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And this, 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 this reminds me of this quote, which I love from the book. And I, um, it's something called the Meisner effect. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Meisner. Meisner, right. Yeah. Internally coherent systems repel external disruptive influences while incoherent systems are easily penetrated by disorder from outside. Yeah. 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 Um, it's a very, you know, it's, it speaks to that point of resilience. That could be personal resilience. It could be resilience of a team or of an organization, of a society. But when there is discordance, there is weakness. And then that creates an opportunity for further weakness and further discord. So, you know, we, we can think about it, and it's, I guess, a very timely thing in terms of the immune system. You know, when, when the body is compromised and it's out of balance and the immune system's priorities have been re, reconfigured as a result of being in kind of a state of chronic stress, then the system loses its resilience and the immunity levels are less strong. So, you know, this is something that we can, we can see on every level of, of the individual and of the society. I think it's a very important uh, principle to understand what is it that we need to do to build that personal and collective resilience so that we have the strength and the capacity to meet the demands that are, that are coming. Yeah. Yes. But but it almost as you say, is that the age we now it's almost heresy to talk about like, you know, it, it's like well, the, the, obviously the thing for people to be doing now is to be taking their medication, right? And the, and to actually even to challenge that and say, well, maybe what's more important is to go back to the to the root and to strengthen our immune systems and think about you know our health in a much more you know holistic sense. It, it, <laughs> that'd get you kicked off Facebook right now, right? It, yeah. it seems it, it seems I mean, that that's I... the paradigm we're in. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to always, always speak to the conscious receptivity of the audience. You know, it's mm. a baseline of communication. What's the conscious receptivity? And, you know, to, to not pay attention to the fact that we're in an age where there is a habitual response to try and fix things quickly and to, to deal with the immediate issue and so I will be able to settle things down with some, some meds, using that as an example. That's the age we're in. We need to recognize that. And then from that place, what can we do? I have many people coming to me who are on medication. That is, in many cases, life-saving. Absolutely important that they take that medication every day. And I support that. That is right. That's where they're at. And what can we do with that in place to start to work at a deeper level and address the fundamentals so that over time, over time, gradually, in a very systematic way, in a very healthy, balanced way, maybe the need for some of this stuff at the top 
goes away. And generally in my work, that's where it goes. So somebody will come to me last week. Someone came to me. They're on sleep, sleeping pills. They don't want to take sleeping pills, but things have got bad. I said, okay, let's just, you know, go with that and let's start to work on you getting some proper rest. And gradually that's going to shift for that person. They will get to that goal, but we need to do it in a very careful way. We need to recognize where things are at. I think it, it becomes becomes tricky when we start to get a little bit dogmatic and we, we don't we lose that inclusivity and that understanding about well what's our starting point here? You know, and we have to work with that. And we have to recognize everything on some level has some relevance. Um, is it where we want to be in the medium to long term? Maybe not. But let's let's start with that and then let's work from there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a kind of acceptance. Well, I suppose that's also part of what we're talking about here is that acceptance of where people are, are at and not like resisting reality, right? Like this person feels like they need to be taking this medication and that's okay yeah. because they that's so that's what I'm hearing in what you're saying here. It's like an yeah, and build from yeah, that. I think it's an acceptance and a, a recognition of reality and then action. You know, what can we do for those who are open? For those who are open, yeah. not everybody is, not everybody's ready. You know, for many, they are researching other ways to get fulfillment and other ways to, and that might be going to the pub on the Friday night, that might be you know, running marathons, that might be whatever, everyone's doing their thing. And that's great. And for those that are open and curious, and thinking about some of this deeper stuff, then yeah, come along, let's, let's have a chat. Let's, let's start to build in some of these tools. Um, Not everybody is going to learn to meditate. I know that. You know, actually, percentage-wise, the population, very small percent right now. However, many of those people are in positions where they can influence others, you know, whether that's a head teacher of a school, whether that's a CEO of a business, whether that's a mother with four children, you know. So, you know, one at a time we move forward. So yes, we have to choose, we have to be realistic about where things are at and understand the, the and, and you know at the end of the day, everyone, all of us, has only ever done the best we can in that moment with that state of consciousness. We you know it's it's a function. Would we like it to be better? Yes, of course. Would we like to see different behaviors from certain people? Of course. But, you know, why is that person, you know, screaming at that, you know, other driver on the road? Well, maybe that person's stressed. Maybe that person's not well. Maybe that person didn't sleep for the, well for the last three nights. You know, what's going on? What's going on with that? I'm not making excuses. I'm just saying let's tune into what's actually happening. Yeah. And is it, it's interesting as you're speaking now, I can, I can feel like that's like a part of development that where, where I need to go because sometimes it gets called like the, the spiritual ego or something like that, like where I'm like, judge, oh, you know, you should be doing, I could really see that you should be doing, you know, therapy or you, you should be doing meditation or what the hell are you doing taking all that medication? Like that's where my head will go, right? Like mm-hmm. wrong, 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 wrong. You should be more like me, right? <laughs> or you should be doing more of the things that I think the world should be doing. 
Yeah. And that is part of that. The very thing I, you know, I'm trying to move away from, right? Is is yeah, the judge yeah. finger pointing. So yeah, okay. It, it, it's I mean, I think it's I think you're right. And I think you speak to something that, you know, we can all be recognized as happened in our lives at certain at times. Um and you know this whole thing, oh, you know, I shouldn't judge, I shouldn't judge, you know, well, judgment's actually really important. We need to have good judgment. I think the question is when, as you say, we step outside of our business and we start kind of getting into somebody else's business about what they should or shouldn't be doing, a lot of what's going on is people getting caught up in other people's business. And we actually, let's put a bit of attention on our own business. What am I doing? How am I stepping up for myself and my family and my coworkers and all of that? And that person can deal with their business. And, you know, often when you find that sort of voice going on in your head, you realize, oh, wait a minute, I'm not in my business. I'm in somebody else's business. That person wants to smoke a packet of cigarettes a day. That's their business, you know. I, I might, how, ultimately, what could I do? Well, I keep turning up in a way that's inspiring. I keep turning up in a way that is consistent. I keep the lines of communication open. I'm available. And uh, and then let's see. You know, let's see when that readiness and openness occurs. Is it going to be this lifetime? Well, let's see, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that makes sense. <laughs> Good. Well, we feels like we've had a, it's just a brilliant conversation. I've, I've loved it so far, and, and so much broader actually than the book. The book, the book now on reflection, speaking to you, is is it obviously quite a kind of practical distillation of your broader wisdom? Let's say it feels like yeah. It's, uh... Yeah. Well, I think the reason I wrote the book was because of what we touched on at the beginning. There is a lot of stuff out there um, that's called meditation. Um, and it's great, you know, the marketplace has moved on significantly, but with that comes a lot of confusion and a lot of dilution and a lot of things that are kind of put up there as something that perhaps they're not. Um, and what I just wanted to kind of cut through all that and say, okay, this is what it's about. This is how it works. Very simple, very clear. And then speak to what it is that I know and what it is that I teach, which is the oldest and the most research technique of meditation that we have on the planet and get some clarity, have a, have a decent conversation about what this is about because the time is right. We need to sort of sort all this confusion out. And so this book is not a, oh, I read this book and now I know how to meditate. No, actually this is about clearing up that confusion and giving you some really compelling, inspiring reasons to sit down with your eyes closed every day. Yeah, and, and then I, you need to come along and you need to learn. And that's the next step for those that are, that are ready. Um, so I really, that's what, what my starting point, because I speak about meditation a lot and I have a lot of people who are confused about it and that's not, they've tried something, but they didn't stick at it. And then they think that they're a failure. And I'm like, no, that's not you. That's a function of what you were doing. And then, you know, we can get them, get them going uh, in a way that's, that's smoother. So that's where that came from. And as you say, this from that base, it touches every aspect of life, you know, how we are. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I, and, and I think that the, the, the reason that this is perhaps good for people who are still in their heads 
is it, it it provides a lot of intellectual arguments as to why you should do it and it, and it, and it refers so, so for people who aren't quite tuned in to that intuition or maybe they're tuned in enough to pick up the book but it yeah it, it and it's helped me like i say one of the practical ways it's really helped me is i now prioritize meditation over sleep oh, um, that's great. and 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 it sort of ended up meaning that i've slept more uh funnily enough um and yeah but that was just through getting that information that actually you can reach yeah. a deeper state of rest than you can with sleep um and and for others they may find diff- different you know i suppose uh levers yeah. in this to like push their intellect over the edge to actually do it right yeah absolutely yeah no that's great i i'm i'm thrilled that's had that effect and i think you know yes there's a lot of you know this is not a dense heavy read I wanted it to be accessible and easy and make sense and some scientific understanding there, some logic behind this, because that reflects what it is that I teach. It is easy and it is accessible and it does make sense and it works, you know, and it fits into life in 2021. Even though it's 5,000 plus years old, this knowledge, it's absolutely relevant for where we are right now. And to not have these kinds of tools, I would argue you are missing out on something. You know, there's an opportunity there to step things up. So, yeah, um, yeah it's, uh, there's lots of potential. I even like the way you framed that, right? You did say, yeah, if you're not doing this, you know, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you're an asshole. No, you're saying... <laughs> Like there's an opportunity here, right? So there we go. Yeah, there's a, and it's a question is, are you going to take it, you know? And, yeah. and I, you know, all I can do is step up and offer it up and, and try to inspire people. And then it balls in everyone's court, you know? Yeah. 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 And, and the other thing that it did leave me intrigued by was this idea of having your personal mantra. So the way that I do it right now, and actually, have you come across Michael Singer, the untethered soul? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he, one of the, he, he did, he's, he's a bit like you, right? He doesn't, doesn't want to give any techniques, but it, one of the things he does talk about is like count to 20, right? So that's the thing I do. It's like a count to 20. And as soon as I find myself going over 20, I go back to zero. But I'm very intrigued by this idea of having my personal mantra. I've tried to meditate with just, you know, off the shelf mantras, if you like, you know, the ones that yeah. I'm just familiar with from yoga. Uh, but I, I always find that with that version of it, I'd like, I do the mantra a bit and then maybe I've, you know, sometimes I can get to that blissful base state, right, for a few seconds, but then I kind of lose it yeah. um, and, mm-hmm. and find it hard to get back to the mantra. Whereas with the 20, the count of 20 things, I find it much easier to sort of get back onto that ladder mm-hmm. up to 20 again. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm intrigued by that. And I guess, the, and, and is it right that it's really only somebody like you, in the Vedic tradition, you have to go to a teacher to give you that, that personalized mantra for it to work? Yeah, there's something about that exchange that happens. And I only teach face-to-face. I don't teach on Zoom. There's something about that because it's a vibration. It's a meaningless sound. It's interesting. When you break down the etymology of, of mantra, it's a Sanskrit word. It comes from manas, which means man. Manas means mind. And tra, it's where we get our English word tractor, traction. Okay. So it's like a vehicle for the mind. Okay. Now, there are many, many, many different types of mantras. You'll see Buddhist monks sitting there chanting slokas and mantras for hours on end out loud. 
That's yeah. a different type of vibration, a different type of mantra, having a different effect on their brain functioning, different effect on the environment. These mantras that we use in Vedic meditation are designed to be used silently and they have an interesting and immediate effect of becoming self-refining. They, they settle down, they settle down. And as they do so, as I was saying earlier, they become more charming and it just pulls the mind in that inward dive. And that's a very delicious place for the mind. It wants to go there. All we need is that kind of carrot, that vehicle, the mantra to pull us there. So it's a particular class of mantra. It's a particular effect. Not all mantras are the same. So this, we need to get the right vibrational resonance for your vibration because, as we said, everything in the universe is energy. Everything is, is resonating. When you have that, it's going to allow for that de-excitation. Now, there's the mind settling down, but here's the body, and the mind and the body is all one thing. So the body starts to rest Bodies do what they do when they rest. They start to release stress, and that actually pulls the mind up. And then you start having a few thoughts. Oh, I need to turn that off, and I need to do that, and oh, I need to put the rubbish bags out. Oh, mantra, and then we come back, and it settles down, and this goes on. So a meditator will report having thoughts in this technique, but those thoughts are a byproduct of having settled down and that purification happening and that normalization happening of the nervous system. Um, so it's the power that's inherent in that vibration and it's a meaningless sound, but it's a very powerful sound. Yeah, no, I, I'm intrigued. I'm very intrigued. I may even want to come and do and your... The, and the, the sense of, of sound is a very subtle... We have this hierarchy in the senses. We have the sense of sight, taste, touch, smell. And the auditory, the sense, the auditory sense is the most subtle of all of those. It's the first sense that we experience when we come into the body. And it's the last one. You know, it's why we have the last rites and all of these traditions as the body drops away. There's the scent, the auditory sense. People will talk about going in and having an operation. They go under, they, they can't see anything. The sight goes. And then the last thing they can hear the doctor talking to the nurse and then boom, then they're out. So the sense of sound is very, very subtle and it's very efficient in allowing us to transcend, to slip into that least excited state. There are other techniques that will work with a sense of sight, yantric techniques, look at this mandala, look at this thing, try to bring about that de-excitation. It's just that sound is more, it's easier, it's more quick. Yeah, yeah. Good. Um is there anything is there anything you would have liked to have touched that we haven't touched on? Um, I think we covered a lot. I've really enjoyed yeah. talking with yeah. you. It's really, it's been great, great questions. And I think we just sort of, you know, um, covered lots of different bases. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I think my message is, you know, as I say in the book, meditation, it's, it's easy. It's not weird. Anyone can do this and it makes a difference. It's like the title. It's sort of like what it says on the tin, you know, it works. Meditation works when we know what we're doing. Um, and I think if this chat can inspire people to do a little bit more research around this, um, then I think, you know, work done. We've, we've, uh, we've achieved something because it's that curiosity and that openness that is really important in this process. Yeah, yeah, um, well said. Okay, well, we'll put, we'll put links to the book and to the meditation uh, centers, <laughs> plural, 
Uh, is there a, a, any, anywhere else you'd point people? I think that's it. You know, come to London yeah. Meditation Center or New York Meditation Center or pick up the book. That's always a good starting point. Um, reach out to me. Um, you'll be able to contact me via those websites. I'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks once again, Gillian. It's been an honor. Thank you. Really uh, nice yes. to see you. Thank Take you. Care. you. Take care. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.